Good morning again. I'm going to invite you to keep your Bibles open to Colossians chapter 1. If you're new to sojourn, this is the point in our service in which we open the Word of God and hear from God. We have sung to Him, we've prayed to Him, we've confessed truths about Him and about the Lord Jesus Christ, but now we gather to hear from Him. So it's my goal in these moments simply to open the Word, to explain what it says, and allow the Spirit of God to take His Word and apply it to our hearts. So my wife and I, Elizabeth, have been in Chattanooga now for just over a month, which is hard to believe it's been that short of a time and that long of a time at the same time. And uh, there's been a lot to get used to. It's been fun relearning the city again. But one of the adjustments for us is something you may not even think about uh, be if you've lived here for any length of time, but it's, it's this. How many churches are in each square mile of the city of Chattanooga? So in our 10-minute drive, I counted this morning to double-check. We passed seven churches. Ten minutes, seven churches. And that says something about our culture. For a long time now, Christianity, to some degree, has at the very most been celebrated, and at the very least, it's been tolerated. And that has had impacts within our culture to this point. And as a result, cultural Christianity abounds. Now, I've used that phrase before in the gathering, even in the last month or so, cultural Christianity. What do I mean by that? Well, here in a mid-sized southern city in the Bible Belt, cultural Christianity is everywhere. If you were to Google that phrase, cultural Christianity, this is what you might find. A cultural Christian is a nominal believer. He wears the label Christian, but the label has more to do with his family background and upbringing than any personal conviction that Jesus is Lord. Cultural Christianity is more social than spiritual. A cultural Christian identifies with certain aspects of Christianity, but rejects the spiritual aspects required to be a biblically defined Christian. And in answer to the question, how might that happen, this particular website goes on, in free nations, the gospel is often presented as a costless addition to one's life. Just add church going to your hobbies, add charitable giving to your list of good deeds, or add the cross to the trophies on your mantle. In this way, many people go through the motions of accepting Jesus with no accompanying surrender to his lordship. These people who do not abide in Christ are cultural Christians. They are branches that hang around the true vine but have no true attachment. And in full transparency this morning, I have lived in cultural Christianity. I myself have been affected by cultural Christianity. For a while, I lived like Jesus was simply a means to a greater end of my own impressiveness, my own respect in the eyes of my little Christian bubble. Some of you may identify with that. Jesus wasn't everything to me. He wasn't Lord. He was simply a better religious, more sanctified way for me to get ahead in the eyes of my peers. This is cultural Christianity, the shadow of Christianity without 
the substance of Christ. It's the form of Christianity without the reason behind it all, Jesus. And this sort of cultural Christianity can include legalism, that idea that bondage to rules and regulations in some way, for some reason, other than love for Jesus, brings us closer to God. But it can also include this idea of license, a philosophy that argues for complete freedom from principled living or even from any expectations of life change due to following Jesus. Cultural Christianity can include both elements, legalism and license. But when Paul was penning the letter to the Colossians in the Ephesians jail, there was no such thing as cultural Christianity. Following Jesus was always a liability. It was never an asset. You didn't go in part way with Jesus. It was all or nothing. But there were false teachings that were just as deadly as cultural Christianity. And the parallels between the false teachings that are evident within the book of Colossians with the cultural Christianity that you and I experience on a regular basis in our own day and time, those parallels are remarkable. So just take a look at the warnings that Paul gives to his readers from the book of Colossians. Look at chapter 2, verse 4. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Look at verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Look at verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, etc. And look at verse 18. Let no one disqualify you. Do you feel the gravity of what Paul is communicating? If we are not careful, if we fail to see Paul's point in this book, then this is what is at stake. We are at risk of being deluded, taken captive, judged, and disqualified. But put this in contrast to the passage that Mark brought our attention, brought, our, brought us to last week from Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So here's our big idea for the rest of our time together this morning. Just this, don't fall for cultural Christianity because Christ is superior. Don't fall for cultural Christianity because Christ is superior. Before we go any further, though, let me address a possible objection. Because the reality is both cultural Christianity is alive and well in the city of Chattanooga, but so is secularism. And perhaps you're sitting here thinking, well, secularism is actually a greater threat than cultural Christianity. But consider this. If we aren't able to see that Jesus is superior to the one, we will cave when the pressure comes to conform our beliefs according to the whims of the other. 
In other words, if someone is unable to treasure Jesus above everything else when culture seems to be at the very least neutral about it, how will that person then stand when the tide of cultural pressure is bearing down against him or her to change beliefs and not follow Christ? You see, nothing can be more important than for us to recognize just how much better Jesus is, how superior he is to any man-made religion or secular alternative, including cultural Christianity. So maybe you consider yourself on the way out the door of the Christian faith. Maybe you are one who would describe yourself as deconstructing. You're leaving the Christian faith. I want you to ask yourself this question as we look at Colossians chapter 2. Are you wanting to walk away from authentic Christianity that finds its center in Jesus? Or are you wanting to walk away from cultural Christianity? Or maybe you have bought into the secular worldview and you just find yourself in here this morning exploring Christianity, but this whole religious thing isn't where you're comfortable. My prayer is that you will see the overlap between cultural Christianity and the empty promises of secularism, that you will see that both are empty and fail to give life any meaning at all, and by contrast, that you will see the superior beauty and satisfaction of Jesus. So here in Colossians chapter 2, we see four ways that Jesus is superior to cultural Christianity. Number one, Jesus is superior to cultural Christianity. In cultural Christianity, you work for access to God's presence. In Christ, God fills you with his presence. Look at verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Here, Paul is addressing a specific philosophy. False teachers were saying that trusting Jesus alone wasn't enough. It wasn't perfect fulfillment. According to them, there was more of God's presence to enjoy beyond Jesus. You simply had to be willing to work for it. These teachers were claiming to have visions of heavenly temple worship. Those are the visions that are being referenced in Colossians chapter 2, heavenly temple worship. And they claimed the ability to participate in that worship through a strict diet and observing the Jewish holy days. That's what verse 18 is referring to. Look at verse 18. Let no one condemn you by delighting in ascetic practices and the worship of angels claiming access to a visionary realm. Such people are inflated by empty notions of their unspiritual mind. These false teachers were saying that followers of Christ who didn't experience or pursue these visions, well, they were second-class Christians. They weren't experiencing the fullness of of Christianity because they were clinging to Christ alone, and that wasn't enough. Christ alone wasn't enough because you needed to experience God's presence through heavenly temple visions. But here's where the beauty of the biblical story becomes absolutely mesmerizing. 
in the Old Testament, God himself was pleased to dwell with mankind. First, in the garden. And then in the tabernacle. And finally, in the temple. But man's sinfulness drove him from the garden. Man's sinfulness expelled man from the holy place within the tabernacle and the temple. And ultimately, mankind's sin caused God to remove his presence from the temple. And since Adam, we have all been alienated from God's presence. Every single one of us. But the garden, the tabernacle, the temple, they were meant to point us to something greater. To a new temple. To a greater temple where God dwells in his fullness. And where exactly is that temple to be found? Well, look at verse 19 of chapter 1. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in the Son. And then he repeats that language in chapter 2, verse 9. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ, and you have been filled by him. Jesus is not only the sacrifice that brings us peace with God, he is also the new and greater temple who brings us into the very personal presence of God. This is the good news of the gospel. We don't need anything in addition to Jesus in order to access the presence of God because in Jesus, all of God's fullness dwells. So friend, God is inviting you today by his spirit right now in these moments to turn your back on the laundry list of extra biblical do's and don'ts that have defined your Christianity to this point. Those extra-biblical laundry lists that legalistic cultural Christianity calls you to as prerequisites for accessing another level of the presence of God. Cultural Christianity diminishes Christ because nothing more you and I can do can bring us further into God's presence than what Jesus Christ has already done by his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. You can never earn God's favor with your performance or your perfectionism. And some of you know, if you try, you will end up exhausted, frustrated, and still guilty. But God is inviting us to so much more. Remember verse 6, as you receive the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, bringing you into union with him, so walk in him by faith in union with him. God's invitation to you today is to turn from cultural Christianity that may has a, have a death grasp upon your soul and to turn to Jesus, to turn from activity with little affection and duty with very little delight and of many rules with little relationship and of much structure with no substance and to find your faith once again rooted in Jesus. He is far superior to any man-made cultural Christianity. Find rest for your souls, not in what you do, but in what he has done. 
That is the good news of the gospel. Let us rest in it and be at peace. So don't fall for cultural Christianity because Christ is far superior. In cultural Christianity, you work for access to God's presence, but in Christ, God fills you with his presence. Second, in cultural Christianity, dead men and women try to live. But in Christ, dead men and women are made alive. Look at verses 11 through 14. You were also circumcised in him with a circumcision not done with hands by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ when you were buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him, and he forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt and its obligations that was against us and is opposed to us, and he's taken it away by nailing it to the cross. See, in the Old Testament, Circumcision was a physical act by which a man and his family identified with the people of God. It was intended to point to a greater spiritual circumcision, where the hard and unbelieving heart of a man or woman would be removed and replaced with a believing heart. This is what Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 6 is referring to. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants and you will love him with all your heart and all your soul so that you will live. And the stranger to the nation of Israel, Israel the non-Israelite, the sojourner who wanted to celebrate the Passover, Passover feast with the people of God, that one was required to be physically circumcised before he could enter the physical temple. But here, in Colossians chapter 2, Christ is the sphere in which God provides that spiritual circumcision. In union with Christ, we are spiritually made fit and clean to enter into the new temple, Jesus himself. And Paul's implicit point is this. If you turn back to the previous forms and the previous functions, like physical circumcision in the case of the Colossians, if you make those previous things requirements to follow Jesus, then you are practicing idolatry, not true Christianity. You are not truly worshiping God in spite of what you think. He says, handmade circumcision. Idols throughout the Old Testament are described with this exact phrase. They are handmade. The spiritual circumcision that Christ brings is made without hands. To go back to the handmade, any activity or man-made requirement to be right with God is in and of itself idolatrous. And that means it cannot lead to life no matter what you are promised. It leads only to death. It is vanity and worthless. It is chasing the wind. Now, it is my goal as a pastor and our goal as a church to just hang around for a long time 
and to simply ask questions like this. What are you pursuing in life to make life work? What are you pursuing to make life worthwhile? And how is that working for you? If the answer is anything other than Jesus, the Bible has a word for this type of living. Pursuing true and lasting life in any event or person or achievement or experience outside of Jesus is idolatry. And while our idols are not typically handmade anymore, they are still produced by us and in us by this little idol factory in here called my heart. For me, when I was in high school, my performance was my idol. It was my center. Performing well in school, in sports, in youth group, in church, in my Christian school, my performance drove my behavior. It governed my days. It determined whether I was going to have a good day or a bad day. Performing well was where I sought life and found only death. Frustration, anger, guilt, shame, fear, all of it. This idol of my performance demanded everything from me, all my energy, all my time, all my attention, and promised everything in return and gave me nothing but death. And when I still turn back to that idol, almost on a daily basis, still hoping to find life within it, I still find only death, because that is what idols provide. Friend, don't fall for the idol of cultural Christianity. It cannot promise life. It cannot promise, it cannot provide the life that it promises. Jesus is superior. And rather than death that idols provide for your worship of them, Jesus provides life, true life, flourishing life, a life of freedom. So in cultural Christianity, you work for access to God's presence, but in Christ, God fills you with his presence. In cultural Christianity, dead men and women try to live, but in Christ, dead men and women are made alive. Number three, in cultural Christianity, you search for a worthy hero. In Christ, you find the truly worthy hero. We all love a good hero story, don't we? What, what is your favorite hero story? Maybe it's a, a Marvel character from one of the 475 Marvel films that have come out in the last decade. Or maybe it's Frodo in The Lord of the Rings. Can I get a what, what? Anyway. Sam. There we go. He's, yeah, yeah, okay. That's good. Good pushback, good pushback. It's not normally a dialogue, but I like that. I like that. This is good. This is good. Or maybe it's a real-life athlete like Sean White or Joe Burrow or Nathan Chen or Chloe Kim. Someone who achieves incredible heights after overcoming 
significant obstacles. But have you ever wondered why we are infatuated with hero stories? The reason is this. God has placed within our hearts a longing for a true hero, a deliverer who will make everything right, but one with whom we can also identify in every way that truly matters. So, we spend our lives trying to be that hero, building our own kingdoms, solving our own problems. We spend so much time defending our rights, our honor, trying to make a name for ourselves, right? Trying to captivate others by our looks or our brilliance or our intellect and trying to compel them to give us the honor and allegiance that we believe we deserve. And when that doesn't work, we start trying to find a hero somewhere else in all the wrong places, in entertainment, on podcasts, even in pulpits and in politics. But look how Jesus, or rather how Paul, describes Jesus in verse 10. And you have been filled by him who is the head over every ruler and authority. Look at verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. You see, better than every superhero in the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe put together, Jesus is the deliverer, the king, the one who conquers every enemy, leaves none to fight another day. There is no sequel who makes everything right. And yet he is the true hero who can identify us with us in every way that truly matters and with whom we can identify with in every way that truly matters for he was human. And what has this hero done? He has not merely delivered us from our sins. That would be enough. But he has gone further. He has conquered the greatest of our enemies at the cross. Death was exhausted by Jesus on the cross. You see, death is a power that has no more power. It is an M1 tank sitting on the battlefield, out of gas, out of ammunition. For the one who identifies with the risen and conquering king, death is an idle threat. But not only that, Jesus conquered Satan and the host of unseen evil powers when he died on the cross. They did the worst they could possibly do to him. They put him to death by wicked men. And yet, when your enemy overcomes the worst you can dish out, your destruction is guaranteed. And those enemies of Jesus, our enemies, those rulers and powers and authorities, they are disarmed, disgraced, and defeated right now. But perhaps you're sitting here and as you look at the world around you, maybe you resonate with these Andrew Peterson lyrics. Can't you feel it in your bones? Something isn't right here. Something that you've always known, but you don't know why. 
Because every time the sun goes down, we face another night here, waiting for the world to spin around just to survive. And I'm looking among a group of people, many of whom work and live in settings where you are faced daily with the reality of broken lives, broken bodies, broken minds, broken systems in a broken city. And it can be overwhelming, can't it? It can be overwhelming to continue on in brokenness like this when it seems like the powers of darkness have such a grip on a place you call home and among people you call friends and family and neighbors. But friends, take courage. Be reminded, Jesus has conquered. God is inviting us this morning to lift our eyes to the nature of reality in Christ. The powers of darkness, the dark spiritual personalities that truly exist and that are fighting for the destruction of humanity have already been judged and conquered by Jesus. Their end is in sight they are a desperate, defeated foe simply waiting out their days until their eternal sentence of judgment begins. Jesus has disgraced them publicly. He's triumphed over them. And he is reigning. And he will reign forever. He is our hero that's coming again to make all things right, to heal all that is broken to restore all that has been corrupted. So friend, don't fall for cultural Christianity because Christ is superior. Fourth, in cultural Christianity, you fixate on shadows. In Christ, you find the substance of reality. Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 to 17. Therefore, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink or in the matter of a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. These are shadows of what is to come. The substance is Christ. See, what the false teachers were saying was that someone's diet and the holy days they celebrated were a basis for judging between first-class Christians and second-class Christians. But Paul destroys that false standard. In this verse, we are told that these shadows were intended to point beyond themselves to Christ. So to continue those Mosaic law restrictions is to turn from the substance to the shadow. It's like if you and I were to have a conversation this morning and rather than engaging with you face to face, I talk to your shadow on the floor next to us. It's nonsensical. It makes no sense. And to do so would be dishonoring to you. And in a similar way, to turn back to any legalistic functions from the finished crosswork of Christ is dishonoring to him. Now, there are religious traditions within Christianity right here in the city of Chattanooga that require adherence to the Mosaic law to one degree or another. And some of you 
I'm touching on your story when I say that. But when we do that, it's offensive to the completed work of Christ. So whether cultural Christianity is legalistic or emphasizes freedom to the point of license, the net result is the same. Jesus is diminished. Either he's diminished by emphasizing extra-biblical rules and expectations as a basis for fellowship with God, or he's diminished as simply an add-on to life, a dollar menu option, an extracurricular activity to the core classes of life rather than being the center of our solar system he becomes a, another moon or sal- satellite that orients itself around the true center of our world ourselves so whether it was adding the old testament law to christianity in the first century or modern day expressions of this there is a way of following jesus that denies his preeminence and his lordship and results in a Christianity that is completely devoid of Christ. A light bulb without electricity, a faucet without running water. It might look good. It might even be decorative. It might be attractive and pretty. It might even have an appearance of value. But it's worthless. Verses 18 to 23 tell us that in Colossae, people sought spiritual development and wholeness through visions, through severe self-discipline, through rule following. But true wholeness in spiritual growth is found in holding fast to the head. Mark reminded us so well of this last week. There's only one reality that has value in stopping the indulgence of our flesh in sinful thinking and activity, and that is our union with Jesus. We're told in verse 19 that it is in Jesus that the whole body, nourished and held together by its ligaments and tendons, grows with a growth from God. So sojourn as a body, this reality has significant implications for us. Two questions to flesh this out. Around whom or what are we going to orient our lives together individually and corporately? Will it be Jesus or someone or something less? And if the answer is Jesus plus fill in the blank, then the answer is less than Jesus. Second question, to whom or what are we going to point one another to as the source of true and lasting life change? Extra biblical regulations or the power of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ? The answer to that question will define what Sojourn Community Church as a whole looks like in our community. Will we be the aroma of life to life in Jesus? Or will we simply be a group of people gathered together to make much 
of ourselves and our lives and our righteousness. Cultural Christianity or Christ? That's the option that's set before us. May God give us grace to not fall for cultural Christianity because Jesus is so much superior. Let's pray together. Father, I confess and we confess as a church body that our hearts are drawn to cultural Christianity. It is appealing to have a semblance of religion without reckoning with the fact that God took on flesh, died, and is living again right now. So Father, forgive us for these hearts that are so attracted to that in which is only death. And we would ask for your grace to turn away from anything remotely religious that would turn hearts and minds away from Jesus and towards ourselves. We pray that your grace would cause Sojourn Community Church to be a place where the Lord Jesus Christ is experienced as superior in every way to cultural Christianity so that his name might be made famous in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He is worthy of such fame for he reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, both now and forever. Amen.